This morning, we will continue our sermon series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. As background reading for that, we'll be reading from chapter 2, but I also want to read from Luke chapter 18, the gospel according to Luke chapter 18, the verses 10 through 14. Luke chapter 18, we'll start at verse 9 actually, to 14. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now we read from Galatians chapter 2. Galatians. Chapter 2, we're going to read the verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, he, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God." I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And our text this morning is those first two verses, verses 15 and 16. 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Am I on now? That's better. Sorry. Let's try that again. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever had to get a new bank card? Maybe your old one was almost expired and a new one came in the mail, valid for another five years or however long they are. And the old one can no longer be used after that, after a certain point in time. So what do you do with the old one? Do you shred it? Do you put it in the dress-up box for the children? Boys and girls, have, you ever, have your parents ever given you an old banking card or an old credit card or maybe even an old driver's license to play with? Maybe you pretended that you were shopping with your old bank card and maybe you bought some plastic fruit and vegetables. Last week we saw how Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are... People who are not Jews, anyone who was not a Jew is a Gentile in that scheme. And Peter was a Jew. Now normally Jews and Gentiles would never eat together because the Jews were God's special people. But the gospel is that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is cleansed from their sins. Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to God's people. And so all those Old Testament Laws about food and drink do not apply anymore. But then some Jewish teachers came from Jerusalem and they said that you do need to keep these laws to be saved. Starting with circumcision, which was the basic difference between Jews and Gentiles. And Peter listened to them. He started eating separately from the Gentiles. It was as if he was going back to using his old banking card, so to speak. It was as if he, as an adult, went back to the dress-up box and he starts to rummage through all the old clothing and pulls out this old banking card and then tries to use it to buy real groceries. Not because he thought that it would work. He knew better than that. That was the strange part. He knew better. But he did that simply because the others around him thought that he should And Paul rebuked him for that. This does raise the question, though, how are you saved? That's what the Galatians wanted to know. The people who first received this letter, they they were confused. They wanted to know, how are you saved? How do you become right with God? How does God declare you righteous? Because by nature, we are all sinners, The overriding message of the Bible is that God is holy. You absolutely cannot come to Him on your own terms. And we confess that already at the very beginning of our service in the words of Psalm 143. 
Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one. And this is the biggest problem that there is. Not just for you, but for anyone. Nothing else matters by comparison. Who your friends are, what kind of clothing you wear, what car you drive, where you work. None of that matters as much as getting an answer to this question, how do you become righteous before God? This is the biggest problem that there is. Nothing else matters. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So there's no question today that is more important for us to answer than this question. How do you become righteous before God? How do you become right with God? And we'll see, we'll pay attention to the answer in two parts. Not by the works of God's law, but by the works, the work of God's Son. Some 3,000 years ago, the writer of Ecclesiastes said that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. In other words, everybody knows intuitively that there is something bigger than themselves out there. So the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity into man's heart. But he goes on to say, yet man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, everybody knows that there's something bigger than them out there. But they can't work out what it is. And every man-made religion is man's failed attempt at answering that question. People want something bigger than themselves but not too big. That's where idolatry comes in. Idolatry is man's attempt to reach out to the unreachable and to control the uncontrollable and to do so on his own terms. Even today, with all of our technology, with our high standard of living, unbelievers look for the transcendent. Ironically, you often find that in the entertainment industry, the most godless place of all, The film industry, Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein and everybody like him. The entertainment industry, that's where you find it more than anything else. Have you ever noticed that there are not really that many movies, none that I'm aware of, although I'm not well versed in this matter at all, but no no movies seem to to, um, be out there that are on ordinary people doing ordinary things. You never have a a day in the life of an ordinary man where nothing happens because it doesn't sell. It always has to be about something bigger than us in order for it to appeal. Look at all the movies that feature larger-than-life characters and conflicts that threaten human existence and sometimes all of civilization until the hero comes in and saves saves them all. So there's this, this urge for the transcendent, for something greater than what we are. But it is not possible to reach it on our own. We cannot reach God on our own. God is holy. God is pure beyond all that we could ever imagine. God is so different from us. And we are sinners. We are corrupted. We are conceived and born in sin. And we just saw a very visual demonstration of that in baptism. The need for cleansing. 
In the past, people have thought that it was just a question of having a bad example. If you just let people develop naturally under the best conditions with a good example, then they will eventually turn to the good. But look at the time that we live in. We live in a time of unprecedented prosperity. We're the heirs of thousands of years of civilization. We have medical technology. We have the most amazing thing that things that our forefathers could not even have dreamt of. And more is yet to come. And, and, and what have we done with it all? What have we done? We've just become more refined in our ability to sin. Look at the breakdown in marriages around us. Look at the dysfunction in families. Look at the hopelessness. People have not learned from any example whether bad or good. That shows that the problem lies within, and by nature we are not willing to acknowledge that. So we add to our guilt. Romans 2 verse 5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Unless we turn to the Lord, that is the verdict that awaits us all. God's judgment. But here's where the story takes an unexpected turn. God called a man, Abraham. He revealed himself to this man. His descendants formed the nation of Israel. Through various circumstances, they became enslaved in Egypt. God called them out of slavery in Egypt. He made them his own people. And he separated them from the nations around them. And that's key. He separated them. There was nothing in them that made them worthy of this grace. God simply did it out of love, out of faithfulness to his promises. And he promised that one day he would bring out of their midst the Messiah who would permanently reunite God and man, the Christ. So getting closer to our text, Israelite worship did not exist as an end in and of itself. Every part of it was meant to prepare them for the coming of the Christ. Every part of it pointed to the coming of the Christ. The tabernacle, the temple services, all of the Old Testament institutions were not just meant to make it possible for them to approach God. It was meant to prepare them for the coming of the Christ. They were separated from the nations around them, and every part of their existence testified to that separation. They didn't worship like the Gentiles. They didn't eat like the Gentiles. They didn't dress like the Gentiles. They were separated from the nations around them. For the boys, that separation was marked on the eighth day after birth when they were circumcised. That marked their entry into the covenant of God. And every part of their lives was regulated by the law of God. Imagine how privileged they were. They were God's people. And you, you find that sense of privilege reflected in verse 15 of our text. Paul is writing from his perspective as a Jew, and he's, he's writing to Galatians here who, who came from a Gentile background. And he, he says to them, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's not saying that, that Jews did not sin. Their whole sacrificial system testified to the fact that they did, and that atonement needed to be made for that. But what he's referring to here is the special privileges that they had as Israelites. As he wrote later in Romans 9, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises 
To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. They were so privileged. And you, you compare that to what he writes about Gentiles in Ephesians 2, verse 12. He says, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These Gentiles led a fruitless, hopeless, godless existence. But the Jews were different. Paul had a privileged existence as part of God's covenant community. As a Pharisee, he was the the cream of the cream. He was a man of immense privilege. The only problem was he didn't know Christ. And it's worth asking ourselves, is the same true of us today? After all, we have had many privileges as well. Most of us have been baptized. Most of us grew up in the church. Most of us came from a stable family background. Most of us have never known anything different. But do we know Christ? Are we joined to him in faith? Have we believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law? Many Israelites knew that they could not be justified by keeping the law. They knew that God judges sin. Consider the words of Psalm 143, which we sang, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living living is righteous before you. And Paul echoes that psalm in our text when he says in the last half of verse 16, By works of the law, no one will be justified. So the last phrase in verse 16. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Literally, in the original language, it says no flesh will be justified. Uh, That's also the rendition that the New King James Version uses. Now, most of the time, the ESV is more accurate than the New King James in uh, the majority of the time. But, But there are also cases where the New King James gives a better translation than the ESV. And this is one of those cases. What's the difference? Well, the word flesh here embodies all that characterizes sinful humanity. It's a very powerful word in this sense, in the sense that Paul is using it here. No, no flesh shall be justified. No flesh shall be justified. So why then did God give his law to his people? Well, Paul touches on that later on in the letter, and we'll get to that at some point, but But even from reading this text, we can deduce three reasons. The first one is the one we've already noted, to teach them their own inadequacy, to confront them with their constant need for forgiveness. No flesh will be justified. The second is to separate the people from the nations around them, the Gentile sinners. So these two reasons together would prepare the people for the coming of the Christ. They needed to be prepared. They couldn't just be given the Christ. Over the centuries, an awareness of the coming Messiah would be formed in their collective cultural subconscious. So when God would cause the Messiah to come in their midst, they would be ready to receive him. And all of this becomes really clear when you read the Old Testament from the perspective of the New. But but then there's an important question that we should ask, and this one is really critical. If you misunderstand this, then Galatians won't make sense, Romans won't make sense. In fact, all of Reformed theology will not make sense. So this question is an important one. The important question is, how then were these people saved in the Old Testament? 
How were God's people under the old dispensation saved from their sins? And the answer is through faith in God's promises. In other words, in exactly the same way that we are saved. These promises were depicted in the system of temple worship and sacrifices and ultimately embodied in the Messiah. So in that sense, they were saved in the same way that we are. If you want to use the bank card as an analogy, a limited analogy, but an analogy, the bank card was still valid at that time. It had not yet expired, so to speak. It used the same currency. It came, so to speak, from the same account. And it used the same currency of substitution and atonement for sin. But later on, all of these promises were realized and embodied in Jesus Christ. And then that old bank card of the law, the Jewish way of life, and everything surrounding it was not necessary anymore. Now, not everybody understood the difference between the symbols and what they represented. It's very easy for faith to be transferred from the realities that the law represented to the symbols that represented them. But symbols cannot save. Circumcision could not save them. Baptism will not save you. Church membership will not save you. Symbols represent the promises of God in your life, but the symbols themselves do not save you. So in that sense, the works of the law, which are the practices associated with keeping the law, cannot make you right with God. Now over the years, some people thought that it did, and that's where the, the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the Pharisee and the tax collector, comes from. Jesus would not have told this parable if there were not a significant number of people who did, in fact, believe that they could be saved by keeping these works of the law. And uh, the people who believed that also rejected Christ because he was the embodiment of the promise, and they'd rejected the promise. Therefore, it makes sense that they would reject the Christ as well. But these works are not what save you. Even if you perform them perfectly, and Paul did. Paul the Apostle, he writes about that in Philippians 3, verse 6. He says that as far as righteousness under the law went, as far as keeping God's law, as far as keeping these works of the law, he was blameless. He doesn't say from, from his later um, perspective as a Christian, he doesn't say that he misunderstood that. He still says, no, my law keeping was blameless, including the whole sacrificial system, including the sacrifices for sins and so on. But in terms of how he kept that whole system, that structure, he was blameless. He was perfect from a purely human standpoint. But what he did not realize was that God did not only judge his sins, God also judged his blamelessness, because it did not come out of faith in Christ. So what's he saying in verse 16 of our text? It's a bit of a mouthful. Well, the Jews thought that Gentiles needed to be added to the Jews to be God's people, and the way that you get added to God's people is by keeping the law. Right? That was a big problem. That... Um, that Paul was confronted with, with these Judaizers. They said, well, the Gentiles can become part of God's people, but the way you become part of God's people is by keeping the law. But what he's saying here is that both Jews and Gentiles are only justified through faith in Christ. 
Faith in Christ, justification through faith alone. The, this is our DNA as Reformed people. This runs through our blood. This was our heritage. These are our roots from the Reformation, the 16th century Reformation. The great Reformer Martin Luther, who first rediscovered this, this doctrine in its totality, and he wrote about what happened when he finally grasped that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. He wrote, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again, and the very gates of paradise opened up before me. That was Luther. And Paul would have agreed with him. Paul said, we are justified by faith. We are not justified by works of the law. We're not justified by visible external works, circumcision, food laws, or baptism, dressing in a particular way, coming to a particular place, following a particular liturgy. These are not the things that justify you. How do you become right with God? Not by the works of God's law, but by the work of God's Son. Paul writes, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What does he mean with that word justified? Well, justification in the theological sense is to to be declared righteous. That is to say, when someone is justified, it means that all of the claims of God's law are satisfied as regards this person. The best definition of all is still the one in the Catechism, Lord's Day 23, question and answer 60. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, I've never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He, gives these, he grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin. And as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Lord's Day 23. So what does it mean to impute? It means to credit. To credit. I might have committed all sorts of sins in the past. I might have never kept any of them. I might still be inclined to all evil. But God imputes. He credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And there's two parts to that. He doesn't just impute satisfaction to me, the satisfaction of Christ, so that my my sins are no longer held against me, but he also imputes the obedience of Christ to me. If you think of a a, a thermometer as an analogy, my catechism students have seen me draw this on the board. A thermometer analogy, he doesn't just get us from from, um, the negative to zero degrees, but he actually puts us in the positive. He imputes all of Christ's works to me. And Scripture is very clear on that. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the basis of this imputation, we are justified. We are declared to be righteous in the eyes of God. And you need to understand this properly. Imputation... Justification is a legal declaration. It is not the removal of sin from our lives. 
That's what makes it so remarkable. It is not the removal of sin from our life. That happens in sanctification. Instead, justification is God's legal declaration to sinners that all the claims of the law are satisfied in regards to them. It's God's verdict that we are righteous in his eyes. It's the imputation of what Luther called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not ours, that comes from outside of us. Now, the Jews in Paul's days did believe in a form of justification, but they saw this in in more uh, cultural terms, and to them this was something that would happen at the end of time. They believed on the basis of their understanding of Scripture, uh, and rightfully so, that God would gather the nations at the end of time. He would vindicate his people. He would gather his people before the nations and he would declare that they were his, that, that they were in the right, that they belonged to him. That was justification in their eyes. This awesome, cataclysmic, end of times event that would lead to the end of the age and the renewal of all things. But in our text, Paul is saying something different. He's saying you don't need to wait to the end of time until God's judgment You can experience justification now, here. And justification is not grounded in what God is going to do at the end of time. It has shifted. The center of it has shifted. It's grounded in the person and work of Christ. The focal point of history has shifted from the end of the ages to the middle. There will, of course, be a final judgment. But in in another way, God has already judged. He has already declared those righteous who believe in Jesus Christ. When? When they believe. Jesus confirmed this in John 5, verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have, but he has. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He has it now. You will still have to give an account of your life. But... We can live knowing what the verdict will be. You can be absolutely sure of that verdict because it's based on the completed work of Christ. And that's what Paul says too in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You know, what's really astounding is that the largest church in the world has so completely missed the gospel on this one. The Roman Catholic Church teaches something very different about justification. They say justification is a process. They say first sin is removed in baptism and then new virtues are infused into us. And don't take my word for it. Listen to what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. Paragraph 1987. The grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us, that is, to cleanse us from our sins, and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. So, although they use the same word, justification, they mean something totally different. You could even argue that there is a lot of similarity between the Jewish Christian view that Paul was criticizing and the Roman Catholic view that Luther was criticizing. 
and uh, scholars have disagreed with that in the last number of decades. But anybody who, who, who looks into the matter carefully knows that Luther got it right. Everybody agrees that you are saved by grace. But Paul and the Reformers say you are saved by grace alone. Roman Catholics will agree that we are saved by grace, but only Reformed people say it's grace alone. The Jewish Christians and the Roman Catholics add works of the law. Here's another quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2010. Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. That's the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Different people, different situation, same mistake. You compare that to verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. No one. You cannot add anything to what Christ has done. Even your faith cannot be added. Faith itself is not meritorious. One of the errors made by the Arminians and refuted in the canons of Dort is on this exact point. The Arminians said, God has revoked the demand of perfect obedience to the law and he regards faith as such and the obedience of faith, though imperfect, as the perfect obedience of the law. He graciously deems it worthy of the reward of eternal life. In other words, according to the Armenians, your faith becomes a work. That work merits eternal life. But our text refutes that too. It says we're justified through faith. In other words, faith is not the ground of our justification. Faith is not the reason for our justification. Faith is the instrument. Faith has no merit of its own. Faith is how you receive the merits of Christ. And this is not, a, not even a theological point. This is simply a grammatical point. When it says through faith, it does not mean on account of faith. There's a different, different word for that. Faith itself merits nothing. In fact, nothing merits justification. Not our thoughts, not our emotions, not our religious experiences, not our attitudes, not our works, not our family, not our background, not our upbringing. Nothing merits Justification. Justification is always a free gift of God. It is not transferred to us. It is not infused in us. It is simply imputed to us. As Paul put it later in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Don't think for one second free reformed people are, are um, immune to misunderstanding this. Most of us are familiar with the threefold division of the Old Testament law, right? Do you remember that? Moral, civil, ceremonial. And we often say things like, well, the, the, 
The civil and the ceremonial laws were abolished. But the moral law, the Ten Commandments, that still is in effect. It still has binding force on us. But that's not what Paul says. When he refers to works of the law, he means all of the law. He says that clearly in Galatians 5 verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, which was a, a um, ceremonial thing. Every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law, including the Ten Commandments. So when he says that the law is abolished in Christ, he means all of it. Now, maybe that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We have no, no problem saying that the civil and ceremonial laws are abolished. I mean, those are, those are foreign to us. Circumcision, food laws, not wearing cotton polyester blends. But did, did Paul really mean to include the Ten Commandments as well? We just heard them again this morning. Is Paul really putting those in the same category as the civil and ceremonial laws? Well, on the point of justification, the answer can only ever be yes. Yes, yes, yes. You are justified by faith in Christ, in Christ alone. And when you really understand that, you live in a way that is completely different from the world. You will love the law of God. You will love the Ten Commandments. You will want to hear it every week. You want it as a guide for your life. But you cannot, you may not, you must not ever use them to define who you are as a Christian. You cannot and may not use them to set you apart from unbelievers if that is all that you use them for. It's either all or nothing. Either you're saved by Christ and by Christ alone or you are not saved at all. You cannot go back to the law, for that will mean you were not saved. Christ did not die for you. You are still a transgressor. You are still in your sins. This is a gospel. It challenges us. Will we respond in faith or not? Will we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God or not? Will we cling to Christ or not? Will we embrace the justification that he gives to us or not? Where we have failed, let us ask for forgiveness. Don't go back to using the old bank card. It's not valid anymore. You're saved through faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Amen.